Welcome back to Uncensored Wizard. I'm uh, so grateful that you're joining me on here, whether you're listening through Spotify or Apple, or maybe you're watching a video on YouTube. I have just been so overwhelmed by the feedback I've gotten uh, over the past couple of episodes, especially this last one, uh, really resonated with a lot of you, or at least got a lot of thoughts going. I had a lot of conversations. Thank you to all those who called or messaged. Uh, you know, I actually really, really like that. It um, It's always good to process after the episode. It's good to know how others have heard it. And if you like what I'm doing here on The Uncensored Wizard, I just want to ask you to subscribe to whatever platform it is you're listening on. If you're on Spotify, subscribe to the podcast on there or on Apple or on Amazon Music. Just subscribe, like, share. If you're watching on the YouTube uh, channel, subscribe to my channel. Uh, please like these videos, share. Um, it's just a great way of letting me know that what I'm saying and what I'm producing is resonating and that you're finding it helpful. So this week, uh, I want to talk about the laundry. And um, you're going to kind of understand what I mean by that here in just a moment. But uh, a little bit of a segue from last episode to this step episode, you know, I feel like one of the things that we're all concerned about when it comes to um, revival or renewal or claiming such a thing is we all want to know what comes after, right? And I get it. Like even last episode when I talked about some of the critiques that I was hearing about the, uh, about the revival, that I felt like were unfair because they were just too early. Like it's, I mean, the, the, it just started and people are already like, well, you know, where's the justice? Where's this or where's that? And I've maybe it's just a, a little bit of reaction for me because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we, we, we have a really hard time leaning into the ecstasy and the mystical experiences of the spirit. And um, we, we would much rather focus on the concrete things that we can judge, uh, such as behaviors and fruit and, and all that good stuff. And that has a place, right? I mean, you, you, you definitely, uh, we definitely should be doing that, but I don't know. I almost feel like it's, um, it's, it, it, it's almost like a pushback against people just being able to enjoy what we would call a move of the spirit, right? Just to, just to enjoy it and to take it for, what it is and to bask in, in it and um, and to take it in. So this week I'm going to talk about the laundry and I think that maybe uh, maybe the conversation this week will help add a little more context to the critiques in the episode of last week. So I'm just going to jump right in here by starting off um, uh, sharing some from a book that I recently got turned on to. Uh, this is one of those instances, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, you know, you go your whole life, you've never heard of a book or an essay or whatever, and then all of a sudden you get you get like several references to it all at once, and uh, that happened with me over the last couple of weeks, just um, the three different places, three different people, three different contexts, I got, um, I got hit with this book title, which is also a quote from the book, so I saw someone make the quote, and then I found out it was the title of a book, but uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, J uh, Jack Cornfield, who is a, a practicing Buddhist, and um, he's a renowned psychologist. In fact, when I was doing my Master of Divinity in one of our counseling courses, 
his book was uh, he was he was one of the editors slash authors on one of our textbooks. But uh, Jack Cornfield wrote a book, and the title of that book is called "After the Ecstasy, the Laundry." And the introduction to that book um, opens up with um, these words by Jack Cornfield. Most spiritual accounts end with illumination or enlightenment. But what if we ask what happens after that? What happens when the Zen master returns home to spouse and children? What happens when the Christian mystic goes shopping? What is life like after the ecstasy? He goes on to say, enlightenment, enlightenment does exist. Unbounded freedom and joy Oneness with the divine. These experiences are more common than you know and not far away. But even after achieving such realization, after the ecstasy, we are faced with the day-to-day task of translating that freedom into our imperfect lives. We are faced with the laundry. Now, I just want to ask a question, all right? And I, I know this is going to unnerve some of you. You don't want to think about this right now. But I just want to ask, who right now is behind on their laundry? Who right now is behind on their laundry? I had lunch with a friend uh, last week. And uh, I had just heard of this book. And we sat down to have lunch together. And the first thing he tells me is, uh, you know, how he's going through a bit of a crisis in his home because they're... Uh, Either their washer or dryer was broken. I can't remember which now. And the delivery of the appliance had been delayed. And so they've just been, they've just got like laundry piling up right now. And I said, well, it's funny you should talk about laundry because I'm actually uh, starting this book called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. But it, it, I'm, I'm asking that because every one of us knows how hard it is when you get behind on the laundry. Like, it is tough. When you get behind on the laundry, especially if you've got a lot of other stuff to do, it can, it can be, like, super stressful. And hopefully, you know, if you're, if you're a grown adult, hopefully, uh, in the course of your lifetime, you've developed some system or some rhythm to stay on top of the laundry. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're good at it every week. You know, some of you, let's be, let's be honest, including myself, like, I got that rhythm, but I'm not always as consistent as I need to be with that rhythm. And when it gets out of control and you got to play catch up, it can be super stressful. The point is, is that laundry piles up really fast. It's, it's, it's a cumulative effect, but it's a cumulative effect that happens quicker than we would like it to. Um, and it's inevitable. If you don't do your laundry, the laundry is going to pile up and... For me, that question, you know, who's behind on the laundry is a little bit of a soul check. It's a little bit of a soul check because what I've come to discover about Pentecostals, if we can just continue taking this metaphor forward, what I've come to discover about Pentecostals is that we are very excited about the ecstasy, um, but we don't even know where to begin to do the laundry. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to play with that metaphor just a little bit more like we are very good at knowing uh, knowing the dirty laundry needs to be cleaned. Uh, we are incredible at sorting the laundry into piles. We like to remind everyone how soiled the unmentionables can be. 
and um and a few of us know all the steps to do the laundry like we know all the steps we can tell you how to use the machine how much detergent to use what 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 the precise uh, detergent is you need to use to get a desired uh, fragrance or fabric softness we know all the prescriptions and the precise instructions for how to use the washing machine how to sort the laundry, do the laundry, identify the laundry, fold the laundry. But y'all, we suck at ever doing the damn laundry. And that's what um that's what really stands out to me about this this quote after the ecstasy comes the laundry and these words by Jack Cornfield in the introduction is that we really enjoy the spiritual experiences but we do not do a very good job of the laundry that comes after the spiritual experience. And I even hesitate to say that because that sounds like the spiritual experience is different than the laundry. And that is some somewhat how I was raised to believe. I think in some ways the Pentecostal doctrine of sanctification lends itself towards that understanding. On the one hand, we say the Spirit does the work of sanctifying on the other hand, we say you don't have the spirit until you've been sanctified. And, you know, it's kind of a, a contradiction or a paradox. But at any rate, I, there is a, I don't think it's a great idea to think of spiritual experiences as being separate and distinct things or graces um, than, than doing the laundry, right? I think that it's kind of like the journey and the destination. When you make the destination the goal, the journey can be quite hard. But when you when you just make journeying the goal and destination is the reward, you can find a little bit more peace for the journey. And I think the same is true with doing the laundry. We often don't do the laundry because we're paralyzed by our own guilt and shame around you know, knowing the laundry's dirty, knowing the laundry needs to be sorted, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but you just got to do the damn laundry because doing the laundry is also a spiritual exercise. And that's that's what I'm hoping we can uh, by the end of this episode, I'm hoping I can make a good argument for that, because I think that it's something that we really need to to uh, recognize about ourselves, any type of movement that claims to be a spirit-led movement or a or a spirit-filled movement or um, any type of you know tradition that embraces mystical experiences. If you're going to do that, then there has to be um, some education slash encouragement around doing the laundry. So there's a phrase I hate, and you know what I what I want to do in this episode, just kind of prepare you for where I'm headed on this thing. I want to just offer some of my reflections about doing the laundry and 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 why we might not be good at that, and why we might push against that kind of understanding, even if not with our words, with our actions in church and as Christians. Um, so eventually I want to I want to end this episode by talking about Lent, L-E-N-T, which oddly enough, uh, it sounds like Lent, L-I-N-T, which is something that is part of doing the laundry. <laughs> and um, so I want to start with this phrase that just drives me crazy 
that is often used in 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 Christian churches is like Christianese, if you will. And I know I know this is like semantics, and I I almost didn't go there in this episode, but it's important for me to to explain why. I don't like making this distinction because I don't think it's a helpful distinction. And I think that it's time for the church to just quit doing it. Just quit making this distinction. And the, and, and it's a distinction that is made in the Christianese phrase about Christianity that it is not a religion. It's a relationship. I just hate it. I hate it because relationships relationships are warm and fuzzy and they feel good um but they're abstract relationships are very they they exist in the abstract they are fluid fluid they are intangible they are in constant change they are felt deeply but you can't you can't touch it it's an intangible abstract sort of thing relationships because they are abstract and because they are felt they are experienced they are both ecstasy and hell and if you've ever been in a relationship you know exactly what i'm talking about relationships are ecstasy and hell and and they start to suck as the laundry piles up i guarantee you emotional laundry emotional baggage spiritual laundry definitely physical laundry can cause some stress in the relationship so relationships as this sort of intangible and abstract thing they it exists but it but it's not something concrete it's not something that it's ecstasy and hell both sometimes at the same times or in varying degrees at different times but inevitably they always start to suck if the laundry piles up if you're not taking care of your shit in a relationship the shit piles up period that's why there's couples therapy that's why having conversation and communication skills are so important in a relationship that's why it's making time to actually have that communication in a relationship and that can be in any type of relationship in varying degrees not just um not just a romantic relationship nevertheless no matter what the type of relationship lasting relationships inevitably Lasting relationships generate very varying rhythms and routines to their lives because because the relationship is the intangible feel good part of the equation. Doing the laundry is um, if you're going to stay on top of it, there needs to be a rhythm and a routine to it because those are measurable and those are behaviors that you can make consistent, right? Uh, certain rhythms, certain routines. And so in a healthy, lasting relationship of any kind, there will there will be some type of routine and rhythm to it, whether it's a long-distance friend, a best friend who uh, you, you call and talk to on the phone once a week. I have a couple of those. Uh, that That's how the relationship is re- maintained. That, you know, that's the rhythm. That's the routine. Uh, when 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 we communicate, we have certain ways of communicating about certain things, and same within a marriage relationship, you you're going to have to develop some routines and rhythms. Some of those are going to happen naturally. Uh, some of those are going to take some intentionality. But there's no way to have a relationship without having some rhythms and routines 
that take this abstract idea of being in relationship some with someone and putting uh, wheels on the bus, if you will, um, putting putting uh, the rubber to the road and doing the laundry via rhythms and routines. Um, some of the rhythms and routines that help keep the laundry fresh and clean, I just was thinking in terms of like a romantic relationship, but uh, rhythms of romance, rhythms of quality time, rhythms of health communi- healthy communication, um, rhythms and routines around shared spiritual pursuits, and so on. So we need those rhythms and routines in our relationships with one another. We need those same rhythms and routines in our relationship with God. Not rules. All right, I'll, we'll make that concession. But rhythms. Religion, okay, offers us the rhythms and routines. And that's why I don't like the distinction of it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Relationships are the abstract. Religions are the routines and the rituals. I think sometimes we think of religion as rules. And it can be. Bad religion uh, certainly is very rule-based. But good religion is, is rhythm and routine-based. And we need that in our relationship with God. That's why we need religion. We sometimes throw the baby out with the bath. We think of religion just as rules. No, no. Religion is great at helping us develop rhythms. I mean, if we're honest, most Christians um, participate in religious practices on the re- on a regular basis. Most of them corporately by most Christians. Few fewer have personal religious practices. Uh, but no Christian, no Christian has a spiritual life without religious practices such as prayer, worship, meditation, fasting giving of alms, all those types of things. Those are practices that we do. That's doing the laundry. That's doing the laundry. And when we when we consistently argue that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, we're always living our faith out in the abstract. And we're not really making any space to enjoy and celebrate and take comfort in the routines uh, that are available to us through the practices of the religion, you know. So there are these rhythms um, of grace that keep the romance of the relationship alive. There are these rhythms that um, uh, that kind of keep the wheels on the bus and the rubber to the road. Now, Judaism, you know, the the uh, the the religion of Jesus himself uh, their whole year was organized around these holy days and these festivals. They created a rhythm. They created a routine. So one of my greatest definitions, one of my favorite definitions of worship is uh, that worship is uh, uh, us bodily participating in the retelling of the story of the triune God, the biblical story of the triune God. Worship, uh, in this definition, is uh, a way in which we practice the faith by walking it out on a, you know, in the in the yearly seasons and the yearly rhythms um, as a way of living out the story of our faith, participating in the story. 
We also do it in church. We go in and we raise our hands and we say things about God and we say things about what God thinks about us. And we're acting out the biblical story. We're, we're talking about God's love and we're talking about God's grace and we're clapping our hands and we're lifting our hands. We are, we are bodily um, participating in the retelling of the biblical story of the triune God. We do that corporately. We do that in service. We do that religious practices. And there are ways to do it in, in seasonal and yearly practices. Judaism did this. They, they told that their story of God delivering them, of what God did in their nation and among their people, they told that story throughout the year with these holy days and with these festivals. So the whole year in Judaism was organized around um, telling the story of their journey as God's people. And yeah, Jesus does confront corrosive religion among his Jewish contemporaries. That is very much part of the Jesus narrative. But again, let's not throw the baby out with the bath. Right? Let's not do that. Those rhythms and those holidays were important to the faith life, to the way of being a Jew. It was, it was rhythms that were um, conducive to their relationship with God and to God. A friend of mine, Aaron, posted this on his Facebook this week. Shout out to him. But Aaron said this, and it just resonated with, with what I was already typing in my notes for this podcast, so I thought I would include this quote. Out of the 66 books in the Bible, there are more references to the festivals also called the Lord's Appointed Times in Leviticus 23. There are more references to the festivals in the New Testament book of Acts than in any other book with the exception of Exodus. That is crazy, with the exception of Exodus, Leviticus, and Second Chronicles. So Acts, the book of Acts, mentions the festivals and the holy days um, uh, as more than any other book in the, new, in the whole Bible with the exception of Exodus, Leviticus, and Second Chronicles. So why are these days so important in Scripture and the early church history, yet almost completely ignored by Christians today? And it's not, listen, that's a very good point. But we, it's not just Jewish festivals we don't follow. We don't even follow our own, especially like in the evangelical Protestant tradition. We don't even follow our own festivals we, or our own you know yearly celebrations. So... Uh, I think this has a lot to do with the f- uh, the fact that the center of our spirituality in in uh, in so many of our uh, church traditions is in the ecstasy and not in doing the laundry. And when we when our spiritual center is in the ecstasy and not in doing the laundry, two complexes are formed in the spiritual psyche of of the Christian. The first complex that is formed is an inferiority complex. And what I mean by that is, if our center of spirituality is in the ecstasy, what happens is, is that when the spiritual practice isn't ecstatic or does not, um, does not create an ecstatic experience, we start to feel as if it is, uh, that the, that the spiritual practice isn't enough, that it's an inferior practice or, we feel like we're inferior, that the participant is inferior. So that's that's the first complex that is formed when our center is in the wrong place. The, the second complex that is formed, in my estimation, is uh, a toxic positivity complex. And 
By that I mean this is the complex that just dismisses all negative emotions and instead tries to comfort with, with, um, with false reassurances rather than with empathy. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a way of sort of dismissing and, um, m- you know, just move on, trust God, good things are around the corner. Um, the bad feelings need to just be endured. They're not of God. You need to get out of the bad feelings as fast as possible. Th- those two complexes develop when our spiritual center is in the ecstasy and not in doing the laundry. Doing the laundry is super, super important. And, you know, my Pentecostal church knew this intrinsically, you know, but we just chose to act it out cathartically rather than we weren't, like I said, we weren't the best at doing it in rhythms and routines. It was more like fits and and spells and was very cathartic in nature. But we used to sing this song in church um, that was called God on the Mountain. And we would, you know, the the lyrics to that, uh, the chorus to that are, for the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God of the night. And we used to sing that in church. We used to talk about valley experiences and how God was present in both. And I remember we would sing the song. People would get very stirred about it. You know, it was a very stirring song and the message was very stirring. It resonated with with us. But it still really didn't move us in the direction of doing doing the laundry, of actually practicing spiritual disciplines, having spiritual rhythms. I mean, kind of, sort of, but but not really, at least not in my experience and not in my tradition. Uh, my friend Carson Clark, he's been writing a series of blogs that I've really been digging. Uh, he's been writing a series of blogs talking about why he now identifies as a beatnik Christian and sort of defining beatnik Christianity. Um, you can find his blog at thesacredhumanist.com. You can go over to that website. Um, his most recent blog post is entitled... Beatnik Christianity savors the overlooked role of valley. Yeah, Beatnik Christianity savors the overlooked role of valley experiences. Again, his website is thesacredhumanist.com. Definitely go check that out. But in this blog, he I just want to read a, a, a quote from it, a couple of quotes actually. Um, but in this blog, he's arguing that because he was raised uh, in, in the Pentecostal church for some time. And he's arguing how he favors a Christianity that savors the valley experiences rather than overlooks them. He says, this obsession with revivalism and the spiritual gifts, and he's talking about Pentecostals, this obsession with revivalism and spiritual gifts drove them to pursue these euphoric, often bordering on hysterical experiences. It seldom lasted, though. There was little evidence of sustained fruit of the Spirit. Inevitably, they'd come down the mountain glowing like Moses and then immediately break the tablets of stone. He goes on to say, I'm not the happy, clappy sort. By disposition, I'm skeptical of emotional frenzies, outstretched arms, and tall tales. Too often, this stuff is characterized by short-term emotional manipulation by skilled BSers and orators and musicians that leads to little, if any, long-term transformation. 
what I have what have I seen reliably hold up the valley experiences that nobody talks about. It's a breakthrough of God's grace that unexpectedly comes in a time of desperation. Yes, but one of quiet reflection that is emotionally healthy, intellectually measured, spiritually centered, and socially supportive. I, I, I actually cannot agree with him more. Uh, I've had a sort of a real life experience of learning that the, this, the past couple of years that the valley... Uh, the cave, the shadow of death, that is, that is where you find your heart. That is where you, you begin to create the seed bed, if you will, for the fruit that we would like to, to see bore in our, in our uh, following of, of the way of Jesus. You find, your, you find it in the valleys, not in the ecstasy of the mountaintop. Now, here's the thing about me. This is a little personality uh, um, uh, quirk of mine. I, I tend to gravitate towards my head. I'm a thinker. And I will think about things, analyze things. I'm always, my brain never stops, y'all. It just runs all the time. And so I tend to gravitate to living in my head. But ironically, the more I live in my head, the less I live in my heart. And that's honestly the worst thing for me because I'm actually driven by my heart. So a lot of times my head likes to pull me along, uh, but it's my heart that really um, it's 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 when I'm close to my heart that I feel the most inspired, that I feel the most whole, that I feel the most joy. Uh, so, I, you know, when I when I gravitate towards my head and away from my heart, ironically it's it it's just not really good for me even though it's very natural for me the natural thing is to be in my head but it is the worst thing and here's why this is what i've learned mystics we die in our heads like mystics go to their head to die when we get there it just sucks the lifeblood out of us we need to be drawn to our hearts we need to be close to our hearts and and integration feels like fighting inertia. The inertia is always pulling me to my head. But as I integrate more, as I become a more whole person, uh, I'm drawn more to my heart. I'm drawn closer to my heart. You know, the past couple of years have been really, really difficult. I've had a lot of uh, transition, a lot of painful things happen, and just some valleys I needed to walk through. And, you know, Middle of last year, I was just, I was, had a really, really hard time. I was struggling. Life hurt. It was painful. My heart was breaking. There was a lot of things going on um, in, in, in my life at that time and, and in my family. And I remember one night just trying to find some way to relieve the emotional pain, which had kind of reached ahead. It, it was it, this emotional, this emotional pain had become like tangible pain. Like I could feel it. And I reached out to a friend who had recently went through a lot of a lot of shit in their own life. And, and I just asked him, I was like, what did you do? Like, how did you cope with the pain? And he said, man, you just have to you just have to take it. <laughs> you just have to you just have to take it. You have to surrender to it. And I, I reflected on the cross and the passion of Christ a lot during that time in my life. But, man, his words were like not the words I wanted to hear, but he was right. When I when I surrendered to the suffering, when I let myself move against the inertia, uh, uh, the inertia to be in my head and just 
settled in to the valley, walked into the cave, walked under the shadow of the of of, um, of death. Uh, it's where I it's where I found my heart. It's it's what drew me back to myself and 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 inevitably drew me back to to God as well. But you know, finding your heart is such a countercultural thing now. It's it's the way of the world is the way of your head, the way of just of thinking it through. But but you don't think your way through. You don't debate your way through. You don't argue or research your way out of a mental web. When you find yourself in a tangled up mental web, or you know, or or an unraveling of your um, of your beliefs and and what you had put all your faith and stock in. You don't you don't you don't make it through those moments by uh, by thinking or arguing or, or or knowing you make your way through those moments by, by making your way back to your heart. It's so important finding your way back to your heart. And, and that is why that is why we do religious practices, not just in Christianity across religions, but it includes in Christianity. Religious practices are ways that humans have developed over centuries of time to fight the inertia of being in our heads, of being anxious, of just living in this sort of animal instinct world uh, of our head in full anxiety, worrying about everything, not having a um, any peace, always anxious, not knowing, you know, almost feeling like we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, religious practices are ways that grind, that ground us um, and bring us back to uh, to ourselves and to being present. And that's why they're important. So that's why I find the distinction of, of making Christianity a relationship and not a religion. I find it completely unhelpful. Uh, y'all, the Reformation is over. I think we're past it. Um, and, and, and no one is, is trying to follow the Torah. And no one preaching uh, is, is preaching the Torah as a way to get to heaven. Okay? Um, if it is, it's very minimal and cultic and weird. But in mass, that is just not happening. We we need to stop fighting that battle. And I think we're always fighting that battle when we say relationship over religion. You know, it's, it, y'all, the Reformation's over. Uh, we are not first century Jews, and, and you know these uh, religious practices that we have are are life giving. They are grace filled. And if you're going to have a relationship with God, if you're going to have a relationship with Christ. It's a way of life with peculiar beliefs and practices and holy days and rhythms. That's how you actually build the relationship. And it just doesn't kind of hover out here in the abstract. It becomes real as we participate in these um, as we participate in these rhythms. And so it turns out, you know, a lot of Christians don't know this, especially Christians in my tribe, which is part of the reason why I'm doing this particular episode, because I was kind of surprised like how many people didn't know about things like Lent. Um, so yeah, the Christian, the Christian uh, church has a calendar uh, that we follow. We have yearly rhythms that we follow to help us uh, walk out the way of Jesus and find our faith. So since so many of my listeners seem to not know what Lent is, and I know many of you do, but I was really surprised how many don't. I talked about Lynn. I talked about Ash Wednesday on on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. I actually went to an Ash Wednesday service and I posted about it on my social media. I was shocked by how many people in my Christian tribe didn't know what Ash Wednesday was. 
Uh, they didn't they didn't get the you know the cross on my forehead, and I was explained it's the beginning of Lent, and then people were like, "What? I've never heard of Lent. Uh, how can this be?" <laughs> um, so Ash Wednesday is six uh, is a Wednesday six uh, weeks before Easter, and it's it's a time to prepare ourselves for the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus Jesus is going to be headed to Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to be crucified during the time of the Passover. He's going to resurrect on uh, what we call Easter Sunday. And Ash Wednesday is six weeks before that. And it's a time to uh, worship together and to be reminded of our own mortality. That's kind of kind of the the theme of the service and of the time is it's a time to reflect on our own mortality, on our own end, on our own taking up of the cross. And it's the beginning of a time of Lent, which is a time of fasting and devoting ourselves to God. A couple of things about Ash Wednesday. They, they apply ashes to your forehead. They typically say something like ashes to ash and dust to dust. Um, and, you know, it's it, sometimes the Book of Common Prayer is used where we pray a prayer that's often prayed at funerals. It's the same prayer that they pray at funerals before the body goes in the grave. Sometimes that's prayed. And it's just this really cool, like magical feeling. It's uh, uh, and I know people don't like me to use that phrase, but it's 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 true. It's um, it's transcendent, and it's just a reminder that death awaits all of us. And it is the kickoff for Lent. Lent is a weird word, L-E-N-T, and the word Lent uh, is it's from the Latin word for the meaning the fortieth, and it's because it's forty days. So it begins on Ash Wednesday. It goes for six weeks. Um, and during this time, Christians fast. Uh, some fast all, fast all sugars or carbs. Uh, some fast meats, wines, and dairy. They do the other side of, of the fast, but and not the sugars and breads, but the meats, wines, and dairy. But most most Lent uh, most practices among churches that that practice Lent have a lot of liberty around what is fasting. The idea is, during Lent, you fast something good, not necessarily something bad. You fast something good for something better and then you know there are daily rhythms and prayers different christians do i i use an app called lectio divina no is that no lectio 365 there's an app called lectio 365 it's put out by the 24 7 prayer movement it has a morning prayer and an evening prayer you can put your airpods in and just listen to it they're about three or four minutes each um, I do that. I typically choose a book. I read that book through Lent. Right now I'm finishing up Brad Jerzak's Out of the Embers. I'm also reading the book of Matthew through the time of Lent. I'm fasting chocolate. Um, I eat a lot of chocolate, y'all. I love some chocolate. So that's something I'm fasting. It's not, you might not think it's significant, but it's these little reminders. Like today I was at, I was showing a house. I'm a real estate agent. I was showing a house and they had a bowl of chocolate there and I, Oh, I almost picked up picked up a Hershey mini bar and ate it, but I didn't. And in that moment, there was temptation, right? And it wasn't major. And this is why I say Lent's kind of a simulation, right? It's a simulation because I had this moment in which I could resist this very small temptation to eat chocolate, but it was a reminder of how important it is to be faithful to your convictions and to find your way out of temptation and to do it in a way that doesn't that doesn't involve guilt or shame, but in, involves you voluntarily denying yourself something good in order to have something better. So 
so what is Lent? You know, it's 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 observed 40 days. It's a time to observe Jesus's 40 days fast in the wilderness. And it's a time to face our demons. It's a time to look forward to the cross and to dying. And it's a time to grieve. You know, the Eastern Church called Lent a time of bright sadness, which I find to be, man, like a powerful oxymoron. The Eastern Church called it a time of bright sadness. Man. So it's it's really a time someone had messaged me and was like, what is Lent? And I, I told him, I said, it's, it's it's an intentional wilderness thing. It's, it's choosing to go to the wilderness. And I think it's so important, especially for Christians who are in deconstruction or who are on the other side of it a little bit, like uh, like I would place myself slightly on the other side of, of the of the unraveling, if you will. Get some of this coffee here, of course, in my world's best wizard mug, as always. But uh, it's intentionally wildernessing, and I want to I want to just draw from Nitschke for just a moment. Um, you know, Nitschke, I've been reading a lot about him in Brad Jerzak's book, but Nitschke suggested that all of life should be celebrated by owning it, by owning all the parts of it, including the struggle and the pain. Um. And he even suggested, Nitschke suggested that Christians use the context of the modern world, which, you know, he was saying God is dead because the modern world had basically killed God. So he suggested that Christians use the context of the modern world, a modern world in which God is dead, to test their faith. Um, And so he suggested that Christians should voluntarily go into the wilderness. These are his exact words. Uh, He said, these serious, excellent, upright, deeply sensitive people who are still Christians from the very heart, they owe it to themselves to try for once the experiment of living for some length of time without Christianity. They owe it to their faith in this way for once to sojourn in the wilderness, if only to win for themselves the right to a voice on the question of whether Christianity is necessary. So what Nitschke is proposing is that Christians take this time, this modern era, and abandon Christianity, walk into the wilderness. And, of course, I don't necessarily want to do that. I did, for a time, walk away from the Christian faith, but I never I never left a lot of my beliefs in, in God or the Creator or the Divine. And so... Nitschke raises a good point, though. I, I, I don't know that we necessarily need to go all the way with what he's suggesting. I don't know how helpful it is. Uh, for me, it was actually very helpful to get away from Christianity as much as possible. And, and now I feel like I'm kind of coming back with fresh eyes. So the question then becomes, is there a way to wilderness, as Nitschke is proposing, going into the wilderness? Is there a way to do that within the practice of our faith? And the answer is yes. Lent. Lent is a great rhythm it's a great uh time it's um it's a great spiritual practice that's a little bit like a simulation of 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 what that uh, spirituality might look like in real life it's a it's a spiritual practice to undergird real life engagement with the horrors and the pain and the grief of this world it's a time to to do that for yourself to face your own mortality to face your own demons to face your own horrors and your own fears, but it's also a time to um, to 
to recognize those who are involuntarily suffering from such horrors, because that's not okay. It is the power of choice that matters in our journey of suffering. And that is what Lent is. It's a, it's a choice, like Christ chose to lay his life down. He wasn't taken from him. He gave it away. We are choosing to give our life away. We are choosing to lay things down. We are not losing it involuntarily. Lent is 40 days of facing our mortality, of leaning into the mystery of suffering and death in full trust in the one who resurrected and resurrects. I told one person who asked me what Lent was, and I said, it's a funeral dirge for yourself. Um, In a world that does not like to be bothered by death, we don't like to think about it. In fact, we just want to cure it. In some ways, we don't have a health care problem. We have a lust for immortality problem because we don't like facing death. We we don't even have it in our house anymore. We put it in the hospitals or in other institutions as much as possible. It's just unlike our ancestors, we don't we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to confront it. But Lent is a is a rhythm that invites us to walk into it just as it is to just see it for what it is and to walk right into it. It's the choice to suffer, to fast, to reflect and to face death. It's a reminder that death awaits Um, And it's a time to reflect on what we might crucify in our lives so that we might resurrect to new life. It's a turn towards the inner life and all of its chaos. It is to surrender to the integration of heaven and earth. And so I just want to close with these final uh, these final thoughts, just some questions that maybe we can ponder. What would it look like to develop disciples of the way and not disciples of doctrine and biblical interpretation because i feel like we're really in my tradition and and the way i've received it we emphasize discipleship as a way of learning doctrine and learning the bible and not really a way to develop disciples of the way of the rhythms of the practices of our faith now these will be disciples who are always fighting the inertia um, to get into their heads as they journey to their hearts And to the heart of God. What would it look like to abandon modern methodologies of reading and exegeting the Bible and return to more ancient practices like chanting, meditating, and reflecting on the words of the Bible? What if we abandon scientific pursuits to prove God or make certain our beliefs and instead explored the depths and heights of our souls in the light of God's grandness? What if we learn to find joy in the ecstasy and the laundry, in the destinations and the journeys, on the mountains and in the valleys? Until next time.